Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast our editor of Lynx Magazine, George Pepper. GP, hope you're doing well. We're, I'm talking to you now. It's U.S. Open week. So I hope you've had a chance to watch a little bit of the action at the country club. Is that somewhere that you've been and seen before or played? Just out it of curiosity. Is. Oddly enough, uh, I was there. I was just uh, on a sort of a back and forth with uh, Reese Jones, who uh, did the revisions for the 1988 U.S. Open. And I recalled vividly uh, being sort of a, an eavesdropper on a conversation uh, in the press room back then, and it must have been Monday or Tuesday in 1988, uh, when Herbert Warren Wind was interviewing Reese for the piece he did, Wind did back in those days for the New Yorker. He did, did like a 5,000 word piece uh, reporting on the U.S. Open each year. And for those uh, listening who are familiar with those, they know that he, he did relatively little in the way of reporting on exactly what happened that week, but did a huge amount of background and uh, told the whole story of the, the golf course and the tournament and the club. And uh, he must have done a two-hour interview uh, with Reese. And I kind of sat there and listened in and learned a lot. But yeah, that was uh, that was the last time. And I did go for the Ryder Cup, although I'm sorry to say I wasn't there on Epic Sunday afternoon. Maybe that was just the stroke of luck they needed. <laughs> yeah, maybe my absence. <laughs> Exactly. Well, we're here to talk about uh, moving towards from one open to the next. Uh, the Open Championship at St. Andrews is coming up next month in July. And many of you know and now have in hand a copy of our summer issue, which is a celebration of Scotland as the Open returns to St. Andrews for the 30th time in its 150th overall plank. George, as he's done in the past, is on today to talk about his column, uh, which I think is a uh, was probably a, one of your easier ones to write because of how much time and your affection for St. Andrews in particular, because you lived there and you have experience. From what I can tell, your first experience was almost exactly 50 years ago when you started uh, your love affair with the town of St. Andrews. But I will let you you go ahead and uh, explain how 50 years at this place has impacted you in your life. Yeah, well, I, I always love an excuse to talk about St. Andrews, Al, and I think this time I have a legitimate excuse in that. Yes, it's 150th uh, playing, and quite coincidentally, uh, this marks basically 50 years that I've had an acquaintanceship with uh, this wonderful town. And when you said, yeah, this must have been one of the easier columns to write, that's absolutely true. Um, it brought to mind the words of the great uh, sports writer for New York Times, Red Smith, Red Smith who uh, said, writing is easy, you just 
open a vein and bleed it out. And uh, for me, writing isn't generally easy. It's excruciating. It takes me a long time. It's a lot of rewriting. Uh, but in rare cases such as this, that's the way it feels is it just kind of flows out. And yes, I um, last summer, in fact, late August, I went back to St. Andrews and played around on the old courts. And it was almost 50 years to the day when I, uh, since I had played um, the first time at the age of eight, uh, let's see, I would have been 20. I was, uh, it was the summer of my senior year in college and I had wangled a, an internship job in Paris working for the French Automobile Club. And it sounds rather romantic. I, the office was on the Place de la Concorde in Paris. And, uh, but the job was, I was really a glorified clerk. It, I, I did, spent most of my day doing something that a machine could have done, uh, stamping visas for French travelers who were members of this club. And I literally went boom, 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 boom for hours at a time. And occasionally they'd let me out uh, to go to one of the consulates uh, for various European countries to uh, check on the paperwork of these people. But it was absolutely an awful job. I kept uh, kind of a, a checklist of the number of days I had left. And uh, it, it was excruciating, the work, but being there was, was great fun. So when it was over, I had about two weeks before uh, the flight home. It was the middle of August. And I... Uh, I basically trashed everything I had, left my luggage there and went to a Paris flea market and, and bought a little army knapsack and filled it up with some clothing and whatever other things I couldn't throw away and threw it on my back and went to the uh, south port of uh, Paris and began hitchhiking. It took me, I think, four hours to get the first ride, but that got me all the way to Marseille and I ended up going pretty much through, through a lot of Europe, made it to Monaco, uh, Switzerland, Germany, Luxembourg, Belgium, uh, and then took a ferry across the uh, channel from Holland to Dover, and then one last ride to uh, London, where I met a bunch of my college pals. And uh, there was one other guy who was as golf nutty as I was, a better player than I. And uh, he and I had determined before this summer ever began that if we did nothing else, we were going to make it to St. Andrews and play the old course. Now, you got to remember, this is 1971 and things were a lot different then. And we rented a car. I don't know how we rented a car, because I don't think we would have been age appropriate for that. But maybe in those days they were a little bit more lenient. But we somehow secured a car and drove up to St. Andrews. I think we left uh, London sometime middle of the afternoon it's about an eight hour drive and we got there and I do remember parking a couple of blocks from the first to the old course and it was the middle of the night and we just slept in the car uh, until the sun came up and we're the first ones at the tee and in those days there was no clamor to play the old course it was not anywhere near the uh, the thing it is today and uh, I don't think anyone else was there to play at that hour and we were able to just go off without paying a green fee. The, the starter's hut wasn't open, but there was a guy on the side of the tee. He said, no, no, go ahead and play. They'll catch up with you. And sure enough, uh, we got to about the, uh, I guess it was about the fifth tee. And this guy comes up on a motorbike. He's wearing a long raincoat and he's got a hat on. 
and uh, he gets off. Very cheery guy. He says, "Hi, lads. I'm here to take your green fees." And I believe the green fee in those days was five pounds. It was certainly not as much as ten. Uh, and what is it now? Two hundred and some pounds. So how things have changed. So we happily paid our green fee. I don't remember much about that uh, round. I uh, we had somehow contrived to rent clubs. And I did have one photograph of it, which is in the uh, current summer issue. And it shows me playing in an outfit. Uh, I have not duplicated anywhere since. A pair of Adidas sneakers, um, blue jeans I'd gotten at the uh, Marceau Pousse Paris flea market, and a hang 10 collarless. Uh, it's not a golf shirt. It was whatever we wore back in those days when uh, you were in college in 1970s. So, uh, Making a great, a great move on the ball there in this picture. Yeah, I, I'm looking at that picture myself. Uh, I'm kind of my lower body is out in front of it, but the back is hanging back. Okay. I was a decent player in those days. I'd say I was probably a five or a six handicap, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm at least my feet are a little bit more on the ground than they usually were, even with the Adidas sneakers. So I don't remember much about that. And it was another, oh, four years before I ever got back to St. Andrews, which is not that long a time. And I was fortunate to have gotten a job by that time. Uh, I was working uh, for the Metropolitan Golf Association, I think is their uh, uh, communications director, very, very brief job, or it might've been with a book publisher. I, it was not, I was not yet with Golf Magazine, but uh, my roommate in New York at that time was David Fay, who went on to become uh, executive director of the USGA. And we had a couple of other buddies from New York we'd met and uh, all of us were golf nuts. And we signed up for one of those package tours where you get on a bus with a bunch of other guys and you uh, gallivant around uh, half a dozen, eight courses. And I remember we played Trunbury in turn and Carnoustie and uh, I think we hit Presswick, uh, Blair Gowry, Glen Eagles. And of course we ended up in the, on the old course and uh, we had just a time of our lives. Four bachelors, uh, none of us, had ever really played except for me in the one round had ever played Lynx golf or golf in Scotland. And, and we had a great time. And uh, there's a great picture of me and Faye. I think it's his, his house. Uh, he think it's a ninth hole and he's doing his best to extricate him from a bunker. And I'm standing there very amused, uh, sort of the prow of bunker watching him scrape it out. And then we came back and with a bunch of our friends and did the same thing uh, a few years later, uh, and I, I guess I've made four or five buddy trips over there in the course of time. But uh, in the meantime, I got a little bit more serious. I uh, found a job as uh, an associate editor of Golf Magazine and was lucky with, within a short time to become the editor. And um, in 1978, got married to the wonderful lady Libby that I am still married to 44 years later. And as a wedding gift in 1978, the uh, golf magazine kindly gave me and her a trip to the Open Championship. It wasn't the Open Championship then, it was the British Open. And uh, she went over and we both fell in love with, with Scotland, to be sure, and, and St. Andrews in particular. And uh, I remember that it was kind of a late invitation and late flight and arrangements we made, but we were able to uh, uh, get a room with a guy named Mort Ullman, who was... Uh, the proprietor of the old golf shop in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he was one of the first inveterate collectors from uh, golf collectors in America. And, and at that time, probably the foremost. 
And um, in those days, the Open Championship kind of uh, brought together an ad hoc uh, convention of these collectors. They, they formed the Golf Collectors Society and held a meeting each year at the Open in those days. And so uh, Libby and I are in this room just off the living room and, and Mort has a constant parade of people coming to look at his stuff. And I vividly recall Ben Cranshaw coming in and looking at the books and uh, Ray Floyd and his wife, uh, Maria, came in and uh, they bought a, a, a golf themed Serling silver toast rack. Toast racks are really big over in the UK. So and the Sunday of that open is one of the more memorable uh, experiences in my life or career, it began watching Jack Nicklaus win his third and final open championship. And of all the tournaments, I've probably been to a hundred and some major championships. There is nothing that I can recall to match that final hole when he walked up the 18th with, I believe he had either one or two stroke lead at that point over Simon Owen, I think, I think Floyd and Crenshaw might both have been tied for a second or Tom Kite might have been in there. There was like a three or four way tie. Anyway, Jack's walking up the 18th hole. Here he is, the best player in the game in the final round of the oldest championship on the most storied golf course in the game. And, and the fans were six deep, roaring, this long, throaty roar and applause. I mean, they're leaning out of windows and standing on milk cartons. It was just the type of moment that, you know, gives you goosebumps. And um, I will never forget that. And then a couple of hours after that, I made my way to this tiny little cottage in the village of Strathkinnis, which is a few miles outside of St. Andrews. And for a year or so, I had an eye, uh, my eye on a young player I hoped to sign as what we called a playing editor for Golf Magazine, wrote instruction articles for us. And that, that evening, I, I got to meet him and his agent uh, for the first time. Uh, his name was Sevi Ballesteros. And the next year uh, at Royal Lytham, it was he, Sevi, who hosted the Claret Jug, the first of what would be his five major wins. And he spoke almost, you no, know, he was, I think, 20 years old at the time, spoke almost no English, but he had a, <laughs> a charisma about him and we became good friends. So that was quite a day for me. Uh, when the Open returned in 1984, Seve won it again. That was the, the day he did all those fist pumps in St. Andrews, the iconic uh, move. By that time, I'd, th through a total stroke of luck, uh, Libby and I had become St. Andrews homeowners. Uh, I'd been there the, uh, I guess it was the, the year before, there was a guy who had bought the uh, Old Course Hotel named Frank Sheridan. And to celebrate his purchase, he had invited a bunch of us uh, scribes to the, this would have been uh, the weekend before the open to uh, come to, and take a look at his hotel. And he also staged a challenge match between Nicholas and Seve to be played on the old course. Well, with a few hours to go the day before the uh, St. Andrews Lynx Trust says, no, no, you're not going to have this circus on the old course on a Saturday in July. You'll just have to find another place. And they scrambled and found a place called Ladybank, which is a Parkland course, eh, 10, 15 miles from St. Andrews. So they told us, writers, here's where you go. It's down the road. And I, I had the car. 
And there were three other guys in there with me, one of whom was uh, the venerable writer for the Atlanta Constitution, Furman Bishop. And uh, we make our way down this, this road and nobody sees any sign for Lady Bank, and, you know, 10, 15 miles. And at length, Furman from the backseat says, oh, hell, we don't need to go see this silly match anyway. Let's go see if we can get on the old course. So that was an invitation none of the rest of us could refuse. So I did a 180 and we went back. And sure enough, again, in those days, it was fairly easy even on a Saturday in July to get onto the old course. And we on we went. We played our 18 holes, had a jolly time. And we're now back in the old course hotel, walking in the door into the lobby, clubs over our shoulders. And who is there? All the assembled press who had covered the match. Nicholas is there, Seve is there, Frank Sheridan, the owner is there, and the BBC is there with its cameras and lights going. And we are caught, I mean, like a bunch of- Red hand. Yeah, I mean, we are just, and I'm absolutely mortified. I, I, I do the perp walk. I kind of put a hand over my face and, and take a left turn toward the elevators. But uh, Furman has no such compunctions. He walks right up to Nicholas, shakes his hand and says, Jack, we're awfully sorry we didn't join you boys down at Lady Bank, but you see, we were able to get a tea time on the old course. <laughs> so it was on that fateful day, playing the 18th hole, that I sliced my tee shot uh, and uh, into the row of gray houses on 18 and never found the ball, found a for sale sign. And the rest is history. I, I called Libby uh, that evening, said, you won't believe this. There's a place for sale for 46,000 pounds. And I know we don't have that kind of money, but we have the down payment. And would you agree to, to doing this? I think it's a great investment. And there was some discussion about it, I recall. But in, at length, she relented. And three months later, we bought it. And so back, going back to 1984, we were St. Andrew's homeowners, and we still are. Uh, we owned that place for uh, 30 years. Um, and sold it uh, back in 2013 uh, for a very nice profit um, and now own a, a very modest place in St. Andrews, kind of a little bolt hole that we are planning to go back to. But uh, yeah, we had some fun there. Um, I, we did not watch the opens of 84, 90 or 95 from that place. Uh, we rented it uh, to, you know, the readers will know the names, Jaime Diaz and Rick Riley. Uh, I, in 1990, they were both with Sports Illustrated at the time and to various other people in the other years. But we did make it back in 2000 to watch Tiger uh, storm to an eight-stroke victory in the second leg of the uh, Tiger Slam. And uh, we made it back uh, while well, we were living there. That's the big di difference. In 2003, uh, my tenure at Golf Magazine was over. Our kids were out of the, the nest and um, my dear wife suggested Let's go on an adventure. Let's go to St. Andrews to live full time, fix it up for a couple of years and then come back and see what we want to do when we grow up. And uh, lo and behold, we did. And those two years quickly became eight years uh, that were the greatest eight years of my life. I mean, we really did become St. Andrews residents. We, we bought a car, we got driver's licenses, we found doctors and lawyers and dentists and accountants and we even bought a second little West Highland Terrier to get, give our uh, first one, Millie, some company. So, and our sons came for Christmas, uh, extended family came, and lots of friends, some we didn't even know we had, came for visits. And uh, it was just a great time. I, I think I 
I joined for, well, I was fortunate to become a member of the RNA by that time. And I joined three other clubs in town, uh, which you could in those days join for about a hundred pounds. Uh, the St. Andrews golf club, the new club and the Duke's course, which is affiliated with the uh, old course hotel. So I had um, lots of golf buddies uh, and I think I played three or four times a week. It was, uh, as Libby says, you know, you, you took your retirement when, when you were 52. So you can, you can work a little bit more now, which I'm <laughs> doing. And I would recommend that to everybody. If you can, if you can somehow finagle that is retire when, when you're in your fifties, uh, do, do a 10 year stint. And then when you're you have maybe less able golf legs, go back and work. So it's worked really well for me. Um, we met, geez, we saw so much while we were there. Looking out this window, we saw, you know, Jack and Arnie say goodbye to the game. We saw uh, Watson wave goodbye. Uh, literally, while we lived there, uh, looking out over the Swilkin Bridge, I saw four weddings and a funeral. Literally four weddings exactly and one funeral where they threw the guy's ashes into the Swilkin Burn. And we met some of the most wonderful people um, you can imagine and friends we still have and um, are looking forward to going back and seeing in a couple of weeks. But I have to tell you about the last round I played there. As I said, it was exactly 50 years, almost within a day or two. And um, I determined that I was going to do this, even though at that point, uh, my back, as you know, my back has been dodgy. And I basically, I can still hit the ball fine, but I need to be in a cart. I, I, if I, I could walk three holes and then it starts to talk to me and after nine holes, it's shouting to me. But I, uh, and, you know, they let you take a cart on the old course, but I was just too proud or stupid or stubborn or whatever meant to do that. So we got a tea time while we were there last uh, August and uh Three old friends from St. Andrews and I, I went out and teed it up. And I was by the about the 12th hole, I was really ruining that decision not to take a card. I was in some pretty serious pain. And but I said, no, no, let's we got to walk it in anyway. I'll hit the shots. Uh, but my drives were going somewhere around 180 yards. I was just kind of I couldn't take a full backswing. I was just punching it and then limping forward and and bunting irons and you know par fours became par fives basically so i get to the uh 18th tee and, and look with some curiosity uh, at my score and realize with horror that if i can't par this hole i will not be breaking a hundred and you know not only have i never not broken a hundred in the old course it was, I was a young teenager before the last time I shot a three digit score. So this was not a happy uh, revelation. So I, I hit one of my 170 yard drives and then I bunt two more five irons and I'm still not on the green. I wear, I'm where Constantino uh, Rocco was uh, down in the Valley of Sin there with the difference that his pin was maybe 30 feet away. The pin that day was all the way on the back left. I had a, a you know, an assignment of, of about a hundred and some feet. So all hope was basically lost of breaking a hundred. And then somehow the golf gods intervened and I slapped this ball up, up the slope. It must've broken, I don't know, 10, 20 feet. Somehow it found its way all the way to the cup and went in and it 
huge, you know, hoots and hollers and applause from the assembled there. And I mean, it was one of those just magical moments. I was almost in tears knowing that this was likely the last round I'd ever played. That, that, I think the gods of golf told me, hey, bud, you've had your fun here. Let's move on. And uh, I, I feel a lot better now. Um, I don't, still don't think I can walk 18 holes. So um, that was my last round of golf. And it was just part of the, the magic of 50 years at St. Andrews. That was a remarkable thing to read. I didn't know that prior to reading your column that, I mean, what you can't really script that, that being it's your last shot of your potential yeah. last round at the old course. Yeah. It's, it's not the longest putt I've ever made. The longest was 183 feet. Also, where else can you have putts like that? But on the old course back, I don't know, 10 years ago on the fifth and 13th hole. But it is the second longest putt of my life and just an amazing thing to happen. And I, as I said, a pretty clear signal. It says, hey, that was your last shot here. Move on. Let the, <laughs> the rest of the world play this golf course. So I'm looking forward to going back and, and watching the golf this year. How often do you get back to St. Andrews? Uh, Libby and I, uh, I would say we've owned this place now about 10 years and we've pro probably been there 10 times. We've probably missed a couple of years, but gone twice a couple of other years. It, it, when I say it's a bolt hole, I, I mean, it. it's a, uh, a, a 50 year old and over uh, community. It, it, it's uh, it's not as if there are nurses and, and orderlies walking around, but they do have a few uh, accommodations for the elderly. And when we got there, the first year we were there, uh, we came in from overseas and jet lag and whatnot. And I went into the bathroom to take a shower. And you have to know that in the UK, they have electric uh, hot water and there's a, uh, a switch instead of a light switch, there's like a, you know, a cord you pull. Well, I got in there and I didn't notice there were two cords and I pulled the red cord and suddenly out of nowhere, I hear this voice, are you all right in there? And apparently what I had done is alert some call center in Edinburgh that, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up. I said, what? No, I'm fine. I pulled the wrong cord. Leave me alone. <laughs> So that's, that's the type of place we live in. But whereas I used to live, uh, you know, a, a half wedge from the 18th fairway, we're now, I would say, maybe a three wood and a half wedge. So it's still, you know, everything in St. Andrews is pretty close to the golf course. There is another great photo in part of your column where you you talked about leaning out the window and, and watching Jack say farewell to the playing in the Open Championship there for the last time. I know you said the two putts you talked about your last one and your longest one stick out in your mind other moments like that is there something are there other shots that you recall from yourself or, or either seeing in the open that really just you can yeah picture well vividly i remember uh watching colin montgomery drive it out of bounds in the open left off the first tee which is pretty hard to do um most of them are rounds I, I played uh, and you know I'm just going to sound like I'm bragging here but I did go over there with sort of a, a mission to uh, break par um, and uh, I did it unbelievably again the magic of St. Andrews uh, in the company of Michael Benalik the five-time British amateur champion and 
former captain of the RNA, um, probably the greatest amateur golfer in the history of Great Britain, or at least in the last hundred years. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I shot 71 in, in his company. And, uh, and I can remember the day I made the 183 foot putt happened to have been in an RNA autumn medal, which is like the big deal competition there. And um, I shot, I think I was off eight at that time. When I made that putt, I was uh, two under par <laughs> in a medal, which is, I mean, unbelievable. Uh, and I managed to, uh, it was 14, it was, I had five holes to go. I, I played them in five over and shot 63, 60, so it'd be 75. I think I probably had seven strokes at that time, maybe six. And anyway, I shot, I think 66 in that. And um, that there's a medal they give out to the lowest net uh, in the four days of competition. And with, um, I guess, one day to go. Uh, no, that was that day. Uh, because the last day, this was the third day, the last day is all good players. Uh, and they're playing basically for medal scores. So the, this was a net competition in my 66 was the lowest. And uh, there are only yeah, a few people behind me. And as luck would have it, <laughs> one of them, a friend of mine named Jonathan Clark beat me. Uh, and uh, I, he had, if I, if I had 67, he had 66. If I had 66, he had 65. I can't remember what the scores were. Um, but I, I, it was several months before I saw him and I, I came up to him and I said, I have a bone to pick with you. He said, yes, I know exactly what you want to talk about. But uh, that was, that was a great, you know, great thrill to be able to do that. And I was able to win a, a medal um, for the combined scores of the uh, autumn and spring meeting. That was uh, probably the, the best golf achievement of my life. Um, and it was only, you know, I think I shot net even par. The interesting thing there, though, is um, I know I was off eight at that time. So I shot even par over 36 holes, which means I was 16 strokes over par for that 36 holes. Nine of those 16 strokes over par came on the first hole. In the spring medal, I believe I had a nine. And in the autumn medal, I made an eight. So nine over par on that hole. And I was seven over par for the other 34 holes. Is that largely due to the swilk and burn or how did you end? Well, I basically nerves. I, I basically choked. And I think I did hit it in the burn on both occasions. I might've, might've missed it on the time I made the eight, just hacked it around. But uh, yeah, the hardest shot, everybody talks about the drive off the first tee, but that is not, you know, empirically a hard shot. You get a huge fair fairway. Um, the hardest shot is the second shot into the first hole where, uh, you know, you're hitting a, an iron off pretty tight turf and invariably into some kind of wind. And uh, as I said in the piece I did in uh, the, the summer issue on how to play the old course, if there's, there's one bit of advice, take, make your club selection on the second shot into the first hole and then take one club more. Put the club back and take one club more because uh, if you can somehow get it over the burn, the worst you're likely to make is a five. And if you can't, if you hit it in the burn, the best you're likely to make is a five. I was going to mention your other contribution to this 
at least from a, a feature writing standpoint, was that uh, for people to look to walking through how to play each hole, essentially, you stripped it down bare bones and made it pretty easy to to go through not every single shot you'd face, but uh, what you're likely to be faced with and how you should approach each hole in the old course. So I would encourage anyone listening to this as well uh, to go find George's other column if you have a round coming up on the old course. George, uh, Graylin Loomis, who was my role before I started with Lynx, wrote a piece for us in this summer issue as well on 10 other things to love about St. Andrews or to do other than playing the old course. And he mentions, among other things, he went to the University of St. Andrews, the campus there, the West and East Sands, uh, one of which, I don't recall which one it was, but Chariots of Fire, the running scene on the beach is where that was filmed. Right. And a few other things. I, I wanted to ask you as well, having spent so much time there, outside of playing golf, what else did, did you enjoy? Did you have any local hangouts uh, that you found yourself yeah. at often? Uh, you know, being a member of four clubs, I hung out pretty much at at least three of them. So, and I'm, I've never been a big pub guy, but I, I think there is a pub for everyone's, uh, anyone's taste in St. Andrews. I think at some point, at one point they had more pubs per capita uh, than any city in the UK. So there's something for everyone there. I, I tell everybody, don't miss the Himalayas. If you can only play two courses when you're in St. Andrews, play the old course in the Himalayas, the little uh, putting course, the natural putting course just to the right of the second tee. Uh, that is just so much fun. You know, that is sort of the joy of St. Andrews. It's beyond being the home of golf. It's a university town, and you can have a great day just uh, walking through the city streets and the university's uh, campus, which is spread all over the uh, town. I mean, it's a history town. You've got the, the cemetery and the castle goes back to, I think, the 12th century, the ruins there. It's just amazing the, the, what you can learn about uh, the history of you know, the Reformation and um, and it's a great seaside town. I, I always marveled at the uh, the British who would come up there on a day like not much different than today up in, in New England, where it's uh, it's like 70, 70 degrees and not much sun. And then they'd all be out on the beach and, and they'd be in their bathing suits and none of them would have a tan. It would look like a convention of plucked geese, you know. <laughs> Out there and but, but if it were a sunny day you'd see them in in the town at night and they'd all be sunburned <laughs> peeling and scaling but yeah you know it's a, just a joyful place um it's one of the reasons we we loved it there um everybody was happy they were on, either on vacation or had come to play golf and there were when the university was in session of course the average age of the citizens probably went down by 15 years and there was a great uh, vitality to the place. It's, it's, um, it, and it's probably the most cosmopolitan small town in the UK as well. So it's just, um, you know, I miss it. Uh, if my visa hadn't run out, um, I know Libby and I would have had a real discussion about uh, whether we might actually stay there full time, but I think we made the right move uh, 
you know, now they've got a grandchild and, you know, the, the boys are both married. There, there's pl- plenty of reasons, good reasons to be here and to visit there. I know you're going to enjoy being there for the Open Championship, putting you on the spot. Do you have someone you like to win that tournament this year? Jeez, I don't. I, uh, I, don't, I don't have a, a favorite. Um, I, like a lot of people, I think recently I've become a, a fan of Rory McIlroy, but he's, he's had his fun there. Um, until, um, Bryson DeChambeau had his injuries and whatnot. I was very curious at, as to whether, and I still am, whether he might give a go at driving the first hole because it's certainly within reach. I mean, it's a 350 yard, uh, par four that, that if it's downwind, I'm not sure he'd even need a driver. Uh, and he could certainly either fly it on the green or one bounce it. He wouldn't need two bounces. He'd have to be very unlucky to land in the burn. Mm -hmm. And if the pin is toward the back, which it probably won't be too often, but, um, to me, I'm sure a guy like him has done the math on this. What are the chances if I hit the green of making a two, uh, as opposed to making it five, because I go into the burn versus what are the chance of wedging it on blah, blah, blah. There must be some algorithm he's done on that, but, um, I'm sort of surprised nobody's given that a try. Um, but it'll be, it'll be fun to watch and whether somebody tries to blast it or pick, pick it apart as tiger did mm-hmm. uh, never hitting a bunker the year he won. So, um, it'll, it'll be fun. I just hope they get a, a bit of bad weather wind. I'd love to see lots of wind because, um, Absent wind, uh, the old course is the easiest championship course in the game. It's defenseless. Uh, Last question for me. When you made your initial trek the first time to St. Andrews and you you thumbed a couple of rides, you hitchhiked, is that the last time you ever hitchhiked from when you went from Paris on your journey? Have you done that since then? Yeah, it probably is. And and, uh, interestingly... um, about halfway through that trip in it was either Munich, uh, I was at the Hofbrauhaus tourist trap and you, you lined up at one of these long tables and uh, there were a bunch of other young co- college kids doing the same thing I was. And uh, one was a uh, young, attractive girl from Kenyon College who was also heading to Britain and she had no particular itinerary and we hooked up uh, as co-hitchhikers. And uh, it was funny. It worked out really well because I could speak both German and French at the time. I labor at both of them now, but then I was fairly fluent. She couldn't speak either, but she was really attractive. So I would take the backpacks and sort of skulk down into the gully to the side of the road. And she would stand out there with her leg on the road and truck drivers would come by and I'd bounce out like Froggy the Gremlin, say, I'm here too. Hey, great. But, but, I, but I'd speak in France or German. I tried to, and, and, you know, we got a couple of rides that way. It worked out very well. And she hitchhiked with me all the way to, to London. So it was kind of fun. Yeah. But that, but I, yeah, I think that was my last hitchhike. I'm just fascinated too by like, I don't know how you, you said you met up with a bunch of friends from college there, just how you even organized that at the time. Yeah. Well, there was this program that got uh, juniors, uh, these uh, internships, a bunch of were in London. There were about six of us in Paris working at 
banks. And I said, I had this crazy job at the French automobile club, but we, uh, there was one guy who had a, a friend with a big house in London and he put up about four or five of us for a couple of nights. And that's where we met. And we, uh, this other guy and I had, well, there was four days before we had to fly back on, it wasn't a charter flight, but they booked a lot of us from college on the same flight. So we had like four days to go up and uh, he had a girlfriend with him too. And we went up, played the old course and visited a few castles and then found our way back to London for the flight home. It was, I don't remember much. It was 50 years ago now, but it, I do remember I had a hell of a good time. 50 good years. It sounds like, well, yeah. at pleasure as always. Thank you again for, for joining today and good luck getting over across the pond and enjoy yourself. Sounds like fun. I know I will. And uh, enjoy watching the U S open this week. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks, George. Joe, your favorite clubhouse in golf is where? Yeah, this is a really tough question, Al. Um, There's so many distinctive clubhouses, either for their architecture, for the history within, um, for the overall aesthetic. And um, man, oh man, I mean, you know, do you, do you dare not say the Royal and Ancient? Do you dare not say the clubhouse at Augusta National, the original American golf clubhouse at Shinnecock? I don't know. I mean, those are some, some real tough ones. In my mind's eye, for a classic golf club experience or country club experience, these two are separated by an, an eyelash, a whisker for my favorites. And that is Wingfoot Golf Club in New York and Oakmont Country Club in Pennsylvania. And I know Wingfoot had some nice revisions to it not long ago. But when I think about approaching Wingfoot from whichever hole you can see either side on and um, just that gorgeous look, uh, I think it's called English Scholastic in style and that uh, it was hewn from stone obtained from the site itself, which makes you think this is of the earth right there that went into this clubhouse. And kind of the way the bartenders are and the way the grill room spills out onto the patio where you can see those famous great historic holes. I just love that. And Oakmont to me, is right up there with it. I mean, it was listed as a national historic landmark on the National Register of Historic Places. You know, the the clubhouse with its kind of green and white Tudor facade, um, again, you see it so beautifully from the ninth hole coming up and then a little different angle from 18 and a ridiculous amount of history within that clubhouse. Those are my two favorites. I'm gonna throw in a third. Indian Creek Country Club, which not too many people get a chance to go to in uh, near Miami, Florida. I mean, that place, just getting onto the island uh, where Indian Creek is housed is like tougher than getting into Fort Knox. And once you do, and you're at Indian Creek Country Club, um, old William Flynn design from the 20s, it is a Mediterranean style clubhouse, uh, whitewashed facade, red tile roof, expansive courtyard, and the views of the bay and the Miami skyline. I mean, you just feel so privileged to be in this clubhouse or outside it. 
So, okay. I mean, if I'm being honest, those are my favorites. I love when we played winged foot and you go out on the course, you see some of that stone, uh, some of those natural rock outcroppings that are still out there. That was something I believe our caddy told us that that's what the clubhouse is made of that same stone that's right there on the course. Uh, so like you mentioned, that's a really cool feature of winged foot. Great choices all around. For those of you who don't remember or didn't hear my answer, mine was Baltus roll, uh, which I think I'm very biased because I got the chance to visit there. I stayed overnight uh, in one of their rooms upstairs. Um, a ton of history there as well. Almost looks like the, the castle perched on the hill overlooking uh, those two courses there. 